Eagles are on the rock. They've entered the cistern room. Thank you very fucking much, Mr. Mason. You put us into a room with no exit. Any ideas, Dillinger? Figured out soon we're sitting ducks. Room tight on time. Use that by the door. Until I open it. I'd like to know how you plan on accomplishing that. Through here. the timing. I just hope it hasn't been changed. You catch one of those flame bursts, you're a corpse. Thank you. Commander, you said never leave a sight, but uh, stand fast, Lieutenant. Have a nice day. Like he fucked his commander. I know it, that son of a bitch jumped shit. Welcome to the rock. Hey, I'm Michael Bay, and I am a strong believer in protecting the cinema experience. I demand things to be awesome. Awesome as you can. Forth and back and forth. Jake is so intense. I started laughing. That's when I said, This is so stupid, but he looked great. Oh my god, you're Michael Bay! Oh my god, I am Michael Bay. Here we go! Ready and fire! Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final Bayhem edition of the Film Effect Podcast, the weekly show that takes all things filmed to the full effect. Each episode features a different film, getting a deep dive effort that we call the Full Film Effect Treatment. And with that being said, I'm Ed. And I'm Andrew. And this is The Rock. The following is a state secret, gentlemen. Disclose it to any party and you will be subject to prosecution. His name is John Mason, British national, incarcerated on Alcatraz in 1962, escaped in 63. There's no identity in the United States or Great Britain. He does not exist. Secrets have a way of coming back to haunt you. There's a hostage situation on Alcatraz. Hostage, 81 tourist. The Rock's a tourist attraction. The one you train to defend you becomes your greatest threat. A battery of VX gas rockets is presently deployed to deliver a highly lethal strike on the population of the San Francisco Bay Area. And the one you abandon becomes your only hope. 
You go talk to him. Me? Yeah. Hiya. I'm an agent with the uh, FBI. I'm Stanley Goodspeed. But of course you are. At least he got his name right. Now, all that stands between a city and a disaster... The power of this chemical is way beyond anything you can imagine. That's where you're coming with us. ...is a man who's never seen combat. You're a chemical freak. <laughs> I'm a chemical super freak, actually. And another who's been out of action for 30 years. Show us on the blueprints. I can't. My blueprint was in my head. Fortunately, some things you never forget. But don't worry, it'll all come back to me. From Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, the producers of Top Gun and Crimson Tide, and Michael Bay, the director of Bad Boys. Welcome to The Rock. We got visitors. Sean Connery. You sure you're ready for this? I'll do my best. Your best. Losers always whine about their best. Yeah. Nicholas Cage. Listen, I'm just a biochemist. I drive a Volvo. Beige one. So what do you say? You cut me some friggin' slack. Ed Harris. Fire. Summer. Get ready to rock. Alright, in The Rock, a mild-mannered chemist and ex-con must lead a counter-strike when a rogue group of military men, led by a renegade general, threaten a nerve gas attack from Alcatraz against San Francisco. And here we are. Final episode of Bayhem. Andrew, did you enjoy your Bayhem month? Uh, I'm not as huge Michael Bay fan, which I'll discuss later on in the episode, but I did have fun with it, especially uh, Bad Boys, because Bad Boys is the shit, so. Yeah, well, I don't think there's a single Bay film I've watched more than The Rock. This is something I'm going to be talking about, but the film feels like a breeze to get through. I genuinely don't think I've ever seen a two hour and 15 minute film before that feels like no time at all I mean I I couldn't believe how quickly it went by for me when watching it last night the writing has more ups than downs the cast spectacular and the CGI is kept to a minimum I fucking love this movie and I've loved it since 1996 when I first saw it that story's coming right up but first Andrew where are you at on Michael Bay's The Rock um I remember it being like one of my favorite films growing up, and I probably haven't watched it in about 10 to 15 years, but after going back and rewatching it, it's not as solid as I recall it being, more or less because like you said, the writing, I feel like the writing is just not there at all in this movie, but everything else about the film, I loved, I loved the action, could deal without the damn explosions every five minutes that Michael Bay insists on having in his movie. I mean, they blow a bomb up in a tunnel for Christ's sake. Yeah, you but, gotta flush him out. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I still think the film is solid. Don't get me wrong. I'm not gonna sit here and bash on the film. I just wanted to get a little bit of criticism out of the way while 
you know, you asked me the question on point, so. But I, st I still had fun with it. Still highly implore people to do a deep dive into it. Yeah, <clears throat> it, this, this film's just, like I said, just great all around. It's, it's up there with one of the best, so. Uh, let's get into it. First time viewings. Uh, it's, it's just that. You see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time. So technically, that's my second time. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. So if I'm not up to, so I remember I rented this. Well, actually, Uncle John rented this, and I remember watching this for the first time. I believe it was a Drug City rental, not a Blockbuster. And pop crop shop. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we went. I mean, this was back when they were living at that apartment uh, in Charlesmont, mm -hmm. and I remember watching it like that weekend. I stayed over there, and him and I watched it in the living room, and you know that was it. Uh, VHS rental. That was my first time. When did you see this? You weren't there. You were young. No, I was. You were like seven when this came out. Um, I for whatever reason coincide this and Armageddon together, and I I'm pretty sure the first time I saw The Rock was at our cousin Tina's house in her basement. Her and Brian just kind of had it on. I was kind of like loosely watching it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. first time I remember really sitting down and watching it was probably in like 2001, and it's because I enjoyed Pearl Harbor so much. So like going back and doing a little bit of research on you know the director himself. Figuring out that he did Bad Boys, did Pearl Harbor, did Pearl Harbor, obviously, like I just said, did The Rock, and at that time, I mean, Michael Bay was solid, you know, no pun intended, but rock solid. So I mean, Michael Bay's a director who never really went anywhere. I mean, he's been Michael Bay for as long as I can remember since he really broke into the scene. Like he just really, I mean, even though he's kind of like pulled a James Cameron and he's been focusing on one franchise for like the long part of his career. Um, I mean, he's difference is he's broken out of that, <laughs> which I don't think Cameron ever will with those damn Avatar films. But you know, the Transformers movies, it was a phase. It was a long phase, but you know, like I said, now he's out of that and he's doing his thing. And you know, like he didn't really go anywhere. I mean, I'd argue maybe in the mid aughts he kind of became forgotten after Bad Boys Two, because the island didn't do shit for him. Um. And it wasn't really until Transformers came out in 2007 that uh, kind of like relaunched that name. Michael Bay kind of re-familiarized people with it. And um, so, yeah. And, and let's get into this one. Before we do, though, let's do live top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay. I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones. Track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Hey. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection, the song is Radiation oh. Ruling the Nation. Top five favorite hostage films. Keep it simple. Never done this one. Um, before I go, got some honorable mentions in no particular order. Of course, um, Hostage, Bruce Willis, superb film, kind of underrated. Um, 
and the people that I do know who have seen it, though I've talked to about it, have not really said too many nice things about it for whatever reason. Um, you know, they have their opinions, and that's fine. Uh, but I'm a, I'm a fan of it. I went to I remember this one. I went to an advanced screening of it, and uh, yeah, been a fan since. So Hostage, uh, John Q, a film that I've been kicking around doing on the show because uh, the 20th anniversary is this year, and it's not a bad film at all. It really isn't. Ransom, a uh, film that I believe Justin just previously watched recently. And um, I don't know. I like Ransom. I, I really do. Um, it's not a film that I often go back to or think about. Is that Nicolas Cage? No, that was Mel Gibson. The Ron Howard oh, movie. Okay. Oh, yeah, came out right. the same year as Ransom, I mean, as The Rock, 96. I'm thinking Snake Eyes. I don't know why. That's a good film. That's a good film. Totally not a hostage film, though. Um, Airheads, because of course. Um, Sudden Death, probably my favorite Van Damme film. Uh, one of his last big Hollywood films before he kind of went and did like direct video stuff. Um, another film that I've been kicking around doing on here, Man on Fire, which would actually make the top five list if it weren't more than just um, a hostage film, because that's more of a revenge film, in my opinion. In fact, I'm pretty sure that made my top five vengeance, vengeance films list that we did recently uh, and speed because of course so my number five is um, it depends on who you're talking to um, this movie gets brought up it's kind of um, a forgotten gem from 92 actually 30 years ago toy soldiers are you familiar with the movie toy soldiers I am not no I always mix toy soldiers up with um, what is that other because Toy Soldiers is like PG thirteen, is it? No, not? it's not. It's it's the, uh, the, the, the the Boys Academy gets held up. It's got Andrew Divoff, the the villain is the played by Andrew Divoff, who played the Wishmaster in the first two films, and it's got um, Sean Astin from the Goonies. Okay, so this is like a Keith live Coogan film. from Adventures in Babysitting. Little Soldiers, maybe, is what I'm thinking of. I like little I, action I, figures, and it's like kind of like a oh film. Oh, you're thinking of Small Soldiers. Small Soldiers. It's a Joe Dante film yeah. with uh, Tommy Lee Jones yeah, and that, Kirsten Dunst. Anytime I hear that that title, for whatever reason, I always mis- like, mix the two up. Now, oh, 91. Sorry. So last year was the 30th. Yeah, it's um, Sean Astin, Will Wheaton, Louis Gossett Jr., not Morgan Freeman, <laughs> Andrew Divoff, and um, a slew of other people. But it's... A movie that I watched a lot on HBO growing up. Um, it's like an all-male boarding school that gets taken hostage by terrorists. And, uh, yeah. So, j- check it out. Or don't. It's on my list, number five. How about you? What's yours? Uh, I don't know why I kept fighting with myself over what exactly is to be considered a hostage film. A film that has a hostage situation. I, I mean, I get More that, or less but... is focused on it and not like a film that features... Like, Robocop's not going to be on the list because there's that one scene with the mayor taking over the... Correct. Yeah, you're not going to, you know... Because of that scene, I'm not going to put Robocop on this list. <laughs> I want a film that's kind of more or less revolved around... That's why I was kicking around Man on Fire because it's more of a revenge film than a hostage film. But, you know... Sure. Give or take. Uh, so I don't have any runner-ups because I, I was kind of busy enough trying to put together a list of films that kind of fell into the category. That's and fine. The the top three in particular are definitely hostage films, and I love those films to death. So I'm just going to 
Start off with number five is Saul. You, I mean, you definitely consider that a hostage film. He's got both of them hostage in a. In a you know, uh, that's that's clever. You, you, you the way you put that on this list. Um, yes, I mean, technically he's hostage. That was no, where I came from with it. The way I'm so. looking at it is, you've got Zed's holding the family of uh, Doctor Gordon hostage throughout the movie, and that's what the main plot's more or less revolved around. Well, I mean, so technically, is yeah. technically a hostage. In well, these they're a hostage puzzles. of their own. So. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, like I, I, said, wasn't I was expecting that, like, but okay. God, I was I'm kind of dancing speechless. around what exactly a hostage situation is technically. So that's okay. Um, I'll allow it. Number four, Dog Day Afternoon. You can't have a top anything hostage list without talking about this movie. Uh, of course, Al Pacino. <laughs> Um, John Cazell, Chris Sarandon, Charles Dernan, Lance Hendrickson. That's funny because when we met Lance Hendrickson back in 2011, Sean made a point to bring up Dog Day Afternoon. In fact, he actually brought his DVD for Lance to sign. I bought his book and had him sign that for me, but Sean had the DVD. And he was kind of taken back by it, you know? He was like kind of moved at the fact that, you know, all these people are bringing like alien stuff and terminator whatever and you know here comes sean with fucking dog day afternoon and you know it was a cool moment so but and that was cool because later on that day we hung outside with them in the courtyard and smoked a few cigarettes with them and shot the shit for 20 minutes one of my favorite moments um so what's your number four my number four is inception because they're technically holding that man hostage right that's what I'm saying. Like I, <laughs> all right, all right, I, yes, okay. The, the the number five and you're, four you're being are kind of like with it, defense, but I like it. But, okay, I mean that dude's technically held hostage. <laughs> that dude five. is technically held hostage. <laughs> held hostage from his own mind. And it's it's a damn fun film. I I, I enjoyed the concept of Inception. That's <laughs> that's always my favorite part about Inception was the entire concept of just dreams inside of dreams inside of dreams, while this dude's yoked up being held hostage. <laughs> Wow. All right. My number three is this, The Rock, for reasons we'll get into. My number three is Taken. That is 100% a hostage that is like, film. Yeah, that is <laughs> definitely a fucking hostage film. I, Taken's great. Um, definitely was not the first time I knew who Liam Neeson was, obviously, but like his comeback, I feel, tour started there. It was. That whole renaissance started with Taken. Um... And we can thank Lupus on for that. My number two, Die Hard. Duh. Die Hard's so great. I I love that movie. Um, my number two is John Q. You mentioned it earlier. I love John Q. I I, I was actually surprised you had it on your runner up. John John Q is definitely one of my favorite Denzel films. So, I mean, yeah, like I said, I'll be kicking it around. Uh, for later on this year to, to discuss. So, yeah, I've always been a fan of John Q myself. Um, I'm curious as to how much it holds up because I haven't seen it in about 10 years or so. It's it's on one of the streaming channels. I'm gonna, I, I've been making an effort to watch it soon. So, we'll see. Hopefully it holds up. I hope it does because I really liked that film when it first came out. Uh, so, my number one is Inside Man, the Spike Lee joint. Because when I think of hostage films, that's the first film that comes to mind. 
I love the writing. I just love the portrayal. I love how New York's a character in the film. Um, great ending. Denzel's in, in tip-top form. Um, Clive Owen is just fucking the ultimate villain. Jodie Foster's fine. She just kind of shows up because she's Jodie Foster. Uh, Willem Dafoe. Uh, it's just a great film, like I said. Um, looking forward to covering it one day. I'll say that much. So, How about you? What's your number one? My number one is Argo. I love Argo so much. It's, probably, it's one of my favorite Ben Affleck films. Obviously, the town takes the chip, but Argo is such a fantastic film. I... I I probably I saw it in theaters twice, and it's one of the few films that I like bought digitally and have watched like in my home theater. So I don't really sit at home and watch movies too too often. I more or less play video games, but that's one of those films I definitely had to own. I mean, Argo's previous episode, I, I I don't know. I wasn't thinking about Argo a bit when I was thinking of hostage films. I guess. Um, yeah. Oh, they're definitely hostages. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, I guess I was looking at things differently. Otherwise, I would have added it to my list at some point because I fucking love Argo, as stated on the previous episode when we did it. Sure, that, that's why I was kind of on the fence about what is technically a hostage film because if you make a film about people being held hostage, that'd be kind of boring. So there's obviously some spurt moments that has to be taken. <laughs> All right. All right, all right, all right. Let's talk about this hostage film, The Rock. Here we go! So, some some background stuff some little some little tidbits before we get into the actual meat of things uh sean connery i love this story whenever i think about the rock i think about this story he didn't feel like like the cast and crew had to get you know because they shot the film actually on alcatraz and the only way to get there is by boat or ferry and the cast and crew every day had to get up extra early and all get, you know, get on these boats. And some of them had actual tourists on there because more on this later, they actually had the film with, with people on the island. Anyway, Connery was not having it. He was just like, I'm not getting on that ferry every goddamn day twice and to and fro. So he had the producers build a cabin for him on Alcatraz and that motherfucker stayed on the rock during production. He didn't want to travel to the mainland and to the island and to and fro. So ultimately he asked for it and because he's Sean Connery, he got it. So Sean Connery stayed on the island during production. That is fucking gangster. I did not know that. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> uh, according to Michael Bay, the script was written much more straight and serious than the uh, first than the final movie. Uh, most of the uh, humorous moments and lines were improvised during filming. Of course, that's typical for a Michael Bay movie. While filming, Alcatraz was still open to the public, and many visitors watched the movie being shot. However, on December 15, 1995, the federal government, which owns Alcatraz, partially shut it down due to stalled budget talks, and filming continued with no visitors present. This is Michael Bay's favorite film of his filmography. I think I've said that before on an episode. 
Uh, producers Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer had decided that they were going to dissolve their partnership when production of this movie finished, mostly due to Bruckheimer's taking issue with Simpson's drug abuse issues, which has been brought up on the show before. Don Simpson was really into powdering his nose. Um, but in a tragic turn of events, Simpson would pass away during production of this movie during to, due to uh, drug abuse-related heart failure. He had a fatal heart attack due to taking too much cocaine, being blunt. And the film was still shooting, and uh, the movie in the, at the end is dedicated to him. Along with Entrapment from 1999, this was Sean Connery's favorite film from the 1990s of his. Tony Scott was originally supposed to direct this film, but turned it down to direct The Fan. In the words of Justin, good choice. I was about to say, that's not a bad choice. No, I was, I was being sarcastic. I don't know. When you, when you, I'm a big fan of The, of the Fan. <laughs> but when you put it up against this film, I mean, The Rock all day. So, yeah, not the best choice, ultimately. I mean, good choice, but not the best. Average shot length for this movie, 2.6 seconds. The median shot length, 2.5 seconds. He likes to cut things, man. He likes the, the, the quick cuts, Michael Bay. Yeah, I couldn't help but notice that. <laughs> uh, this film is part of the Criterion Collection, Spine number 108. It was on DVD. I used to own it, along with Armageddon. And finally, this was the fourth highest grossed film of 1996. More on that later on in the box office talk. Alright, so the film itself immediately sets up our villain and Ed Harris's general, Frank Hummel. He's seen contemplating something over the opening credits, set to some audio from Men at War. It's clear what this man's pondering isn't what kind of pizza he's ordering for dinner, that's for damn sure. So the character of Hummel here, speaking of Don Simpson, he was largely responsible for creating the character. He uh, watched a 1993 episode of 60 Minutes. Uh, there was a segment about the U.S. government's refusal to acknowledge soldiers who had died during covert overseas missions and later read Colonel David H. Hackworth's memoirs, which harshly criticized U.S. during the Vietnam War. He combined these elements into Hummel's character and, as Jonathan Hazley described, created a really compelling villain, a soldier with a noble end, but unfortunately, psychotic means. Um, so then we see Hummel go to see his wife in the rain at her grave and apologizes, says that he doesn't have their attention and his men keep dying. So he takes his Medal of Honors and leaves him on her tombstone, kisses it, and heads out. I miss you so much. There's something I've got to do, Bob. Something I couldn't do while you were here. I tried. You know I tried everything, and I still don't have their attention. Let's hope this elevates their thinking. But whatever happens, please don't think less of me.
So Michael Bay worked closely with Ed Harris to develop his character as concretely as possible, later adding a sympathetic edge to Hummel that we see throughout the movie. Um, he's just trying to get the, the U.S.'s attention in a unethical manner, <laughs> um, to say the least. But I can see that drive that makes him do what he does. Um, not defending his um, actions by any means. I'm just saying I like the what I'm getting at is I like how Michael Bay incorporates a villain for this movie that you can get behind. He has a purpose that you can see, although you don't don't agree with his methods. You can understandably understand why he's going through with this and how in the end, which we'll get to, you know, this was all pretty much kind of like a cheap bluff that was called. Anything you want yeah, to add to that? Yeah, I, was, I was actually going to say something. <laughs> I, was like, and then I heard I you get that exactly breath, and I'm like, say. Um, words. Yeah, he's just—he's not a mad bomber, and I feel like that's what Bay went for, is to have some form of a story so that he isn't just some random you know, mad bomber or somebody who decided to turn his back on the government or anything like that. It, it, it's a little bit more weight to the situation. So I, I definitely enjoy Ed, Ed Harris's character in the movie a lot. It's personal. You know, I can't speak from personal um, experience because obviously I was never in the uh, military or anything like that. But I have a good understanding based off of movies, documentaries, and just knowing people that experienced it that there's a camaraderie, you know, amongst these men. And it's like a brotherhood. Um, I don't know if that's the best word to use. But you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm They're getting a unit. at. Yeah, exactly. A, a whole unit. So and so, when things like this happen, and they're asked to go into these, you know, secret op wars and or missions rather, and it ends up with casualties, and these casualties don't even get acknowledged. That's pretty fucked, you know. Um. So Frank and his men of rogue U.S. Forest Recon Marines. They uh, see them taking over this heavily guarded naval weapons depot to uh, steal a stockpile of 16 VX gas-loaded M55 rockets, which will fuck you up. (laughs) They're careful not to have any casualties, so his men use tranquilizers instead of actual guns. Did you notice that? It took me a couple times watching this for me to actually realize that they're no bullets. They're actually just knocking them out with darts, essentially. I just don't understand why. You're you're going in there to steal gas to obviously, like, have a mischievous plot behind it. Why are you using tranquilizers? <laughs> because if you actually kill these men, like, these are actual soldiers that are guarding this base. You kill them, you have their blood on your hands. Remember... Hummel's going into... We don't know this as the viewer, but Hummel's going into this from stage one, day one, whatever. He's been going into this all along, bluffing, with the intention of bluffing. Which makes begs the question, why even go through with this mission of getting the rockets to begin with? If you're not going to use them, why are you going and going, risking... I mean, we see a man die which we're about to get at, you know. While they're unloading these rockets, we see these green balls, and they one of them falls and smashes, and like right away, we see David Morse's Baxter 
fucking like call out everyone and they all rush to the door. Everyone gets out except for one unlucky duck. And unfortunately, he gets sealed inside with this ball and it reminded me of um, what's his face from RoboCop? Toxic Waste. Like this guy's just, uh, his just gets hit bubbling and yeah. And this was just, you know, crazy good effects. I wonder, I think I wouldn't be surprised if KB came in for a couple of days to do this effect. You actually see the skin bubbling and shit. It's pretty gnarly. Yeah, it's definitely a great post for sure. But you have that man's blood on your hands now, and for what? You know, you could have you could have uh, prevented this. Because again, I hate to be a dead horse here, but you're going in bluffing. So. I, I feel like I have a whole new perspective of this movie since watching it yesterday. That's not for worse either. So, well, maybe for some elements. Um, and David Morse, so the guy who plays Baxter, Baxter's like humble second in command. The, the, this, I, I don't know if, like, how good you are with faces. Do you recognize this actor, David Morse, who plays Baxter? Like the second in command. No, not not at all. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so this guy doesn't ring a bell. No, David Morris from, I know him from a lot of stuff. Long Kiss Tonight, which we just covered. Um, Disturbia is another big one because he's like the lead villain in that movie. Um, underrated movie. That movie took me by surprise when I first saw it. You ever seen Disturbia with uh, Shia LaBeouf? No, I was... No, I haven't. It's essentially Rear Window. It's Hitchcock. It's like a remake. Uh, so. so how old is David Morse? 68? Oh, okay. Well, 25 years ago is when we filmed this. No, 26, 27. So he was more or less 40-ish. Oh, yeah. He's in Green Mile. I forgot about that. That's right. Green Mile. Yeah, brutal. See, that's what I'm saying. I saw, I see his face, and for whatever reason, I just can't connect it. I've seen Green Mile like twenty times in my life, and just didn't pick up on it. I guess until just now, looking at it. No. Been a big fan of his for a long time. Um, so we're introduced to the FBI's top chemical weapons specialist, Doctor Stanley Goods. Yeah, Doctor Stanley Goodspeed. That's a mouthful. Um, he's at his desk playing with toy guns with his partner Marvin who's the dude from High Fidelity and Jerry Maguire. The actor's name is uh, Todd Luiso. You probably have no idea who the fuck he was. Um, <laughs> yeah, funny guy. And his Beatles record comes in, and Marvin suggests ordering a $13 CD instead, to which Stanley replies, "He's uh, it's because he's a Beatles maniac, and second, these sound better. That's why he gets vinyl. Um... And a scene that doesn't quite hold up by today's standards with this whole, you know, vinyl revival going on right now. Like, this movie's all like, man, why you gotta get the record? Just get the CD, man. And today it's like, who gets CDs, man? Just get the vinyl. Yeah, I love, I love how vinyls just all of a sudden became a form of media that everybody has to have, like... It's one format I never got behind. Well, that and Laserdisc are like two formats I never got behind. Um, I don't know. I tried doing the whole record thing 
way back when, but I couldn't get the speakers hooked up right, and I wasted money on getting Flogging Molly's uh, Drunken Lullabies record. What was that called? Was it called Drunken Lullabies? Probably was. Either Drunken Lullabies or Swagger. I mean, those are the first two albums. Okay, well, so. I ended up getting one of those two on, on vinyl and couldn't listen to the damn thing because the speakers wouldn't work. So I was like, ah, blasphemy. Anywho, um... We live in 2022, people. Just get MP3 players. That's true. That, that, that's true. MP3 players, just get a fucking I'm, phone. I'm, I'm, I'm jokingly saying that. Nicholas Cage. <laughs> uh, he signed on to this movie initially just to work with the production team of uh, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. He felt their movies had a timely sensibility about them. Whatever the fuck that means. Um, and then he'd go on to, of course, return for a slew. Yeah, he'd go on like a little mini run of Bruckheimer films after this because he followed it up with Con Air. And then after Con Air, it was uh, um, Gone in 60 Seconds. And then after that, it was uh, the National Treasure movies. Hell yeah. And then even yeah. after that, he was in that fucking, uh, the, the, what the hell was that movie where he was like the fucking wizard, the, the, the Ben, the, the fucking Fantasia, oh my god, the movie based on the Fantasia mopstick bit, they made a full length movie out of that. Are you fucking serious? Hang on, I gotta look this up. I know my mind, I know my memory is not fucking with me right now. I know like in two thousand nine or two thousand ten ish, he did a fucking movie. If I can only find his goddamn filmography, where is it? Here it is. Um, I'm not crazy. I know I'm not crazy. I mean, sometimes I'm crazy, but this time, this instance, I'm not crazy. Nick Cage, The is- Sorcerer's Apprentice. I knew it. Yes, this shit. It's a Jerry Bruckheimer movie. I definitely don't want to see that. And he also did G-Force. He did a slew of Bruckheimer films, dude. My man got him in. Anyway. um, So the FBI receives a mysterious crate. And they suspect that it contains satin gas. So they send Marvin and Stanley into the chamber to inspect. They um, come in with their little thing of cockroaches um I didn't really have time to look into this but is this something that I, I didn't understand the cockroach thing here I would assume it's because they can survive like nuclear situations like they everyone always says that if like people perish away or whatever the only thing that will be left is cockroaches they're literally indestructible unless you smash them obviously I don't understand. Like, but when the poison stuff is released, we see the roaches. They just they just start to explode and thrash and die and erupt of a mass of like red blood. I don't know. I, I it's 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 weird. It's um. Cause fuck them roaches. I just I've never understood it. If anyone listening can just explain like why they bring the cockroaches in. Unless it's something so obvious that I'm just overlooking it, I just I don't know. I've never understood the the why. But whatever, I I, I digress. Let's move on. Um, so they enter and they inspect it. There's this box. Well, they 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 inspect this crate from Bosnia. 
which contains dirty magazines, a gas mask, and a baby doll that Marvin begins to play with right away because, you know, professionalism. And that begins uh, leaking out this gas, the sarin gas that they were suspecting that was there, is there, hidden inside this baby, along with a shit ton of C4. Um, the sprinkler systems doesn't work right away so that this this gas, this chemical, starts eating through their suit, which causes them, or at least Marvin panics, so they're like, quick, get that like, atropine needle and stick it through your heart, you gotta do it right now, and like, Marvin's like, you want me to stick this through my fucking heart, uh-huh. are you crazy, like, no, um, and even like, even Stanley's like, get that thing away from me, <laughs> like, cause you can see the whole vision and shit, like, like, this whole scene is like, just, like a little mini effect of, uh, Bayhem, <laughs> it's, it's crazy, um, it's like, how much anxiety can we put on the screen within a two-minute span? Go. Involve uh, a giant needle. I mean, at, at the last second, he gets it, and, you know, rescued or saved. Then we automatically cut the good speed at home, naked and drunk, playing guitar when his girlfriend comes home. Carla, is that her name? Yeah. I, yes. Okay. just want to make sure I had that right. Carla. For some reason, I didn't, put, I didn't put her name down in my notes. Um, she comes home, and she's got news. She's pregnant. And this also leads to her proposing to him, which is something that's not really common. And it's a lot on poor Cage, you know. Now, in real life, Nicolas Cage and Michael Bay differed. Differed. <laughs> deferred as the reasoning. No, they, they, they clashed. Um as the reasoning behind this scene with him naked. Like, Bay said it was because Cage wanted to show off his body, so they decided just to get it out of the way up front, but Cage says he simply wanted to establish what a character, that his character was at home. And I guess Nicolas Cage likes to just sit around naked and play guitar when he's at home, in between movie shoots. Like, this is my life. This is what I do. I'm home. Privacy. Fuck clothes, right? Is that what we're saying? I suppose so. And he's playing that guitar. I don't know. Can't really relate. It's kind of weird. Not going to lie. The whole scene is just awkward. Yeah. This scene's always been like, okay. Cage is sitting there just full out naked. Um, So then we cut the Hummel and his men taking over Alcatraz. Now, I got to mention a couple things off the bat here. So number one, we see that Hummel has a heart. He goes right away over the little girl and tells them to get to their teachers and tell them that they need to get back on the boat and leave. Now, I don't know. Did the teachers just accept this and, and leave without alerting anybody? Like, hey, the kids said we gotta go, so we gotta go. <laughs> Think about let's, that one. Let's go. Like, imagine being the kids go back to your teacher like the homo asked them to do, and they actually do it. And the teachers are like, oh my god, class, let's get together. we got to end the field trip early because these little girls just told us that they're going to take over the island. No, I'm not quite sure they're going to alert their plan before things really go down. I I don't know. Uh, it's something I was thinking about for the first time watching it yesterday. I was like, I wonder how that conversation went. And rumor s- has it, we're all going to die. <laughs> and second, um, the ranger... Fucking Ranger Bob is played by Halloween 4's Raymond O'Connor. He's the crazy looking guy 
inside the uh, hospital in the opening scene when they go to pick up Michael Myers' body. That's the guy who plays Ranger Bob in this movie. And apparently, he was so fucking funny on set that Ed Harris could not stop laughing. Like, he had to struggle to get through like, the giggles the entire day of shooting with this guy. Which, that's pretty cool. It's, I bet you it's one of uh, O'Connor's shining moments that he probably still talks about. He said, I made Ed Harris laugh. <laughs> I made Ed Harris laugh. That's my reputation. So the studio wanted this movie shot in L.A. with only a handful of exteriors of Alcatraz in San Francisco to uh, complete the illusion. But uh, Bay is like, nah. He told them, I got to shoot on this island because the island is so fucking bitching. And that's a direct quote. Because it, the island's so what? Fucking bitching. <laughs> Just like he said that he had to get that Miami shot from uh, the first Bad Boys film because it was going to look bitchin'. Bitchin' is like, I've one thing I've learned covering these films over the last month, I've learned a lot about Michael Bay. i got to say that's much, this much. But one thing I've definitely learned is that he loves the word bitchin'. He's like an old, like, 80s, white, blonde-haired, long surfer dude. Like, bitchin', rad, tubular. You know, that's Michael Bay in a nutshell. That's why he's in his 50s now, probably in his 60s, and his hair is still long. He's just <laughs> never going to die, man. Staying young forever. I dig it. I like his style. It's just, I don't know, bitching? That's hilarious. Bitching, <laughs> Somebody man. that uses that, unironically, in their everyday vocabulary. Yeah, it's, everything's bitching, man. So we see Hummel brief the new soldiers of his unit, Tony Todd, you know, Candyman for all you out there. Say anything's Gregory Sporletter and a ridiculously long Bokeem long young Bokeem Woodbine. You familiar with Bokeem Woodbine? No? Okay. He's the I, young I'm soldier. I'm shaking Chris. my head at Ed. No. <laughs> he tells them that after this they cannot return to the US. They pretty much have to go rogue and lay somewhere just can't go back to the u.s you got to go anywhere you, you you can go wherever you want but you can't stay here so they all agree and the bluff is on uh so dc's alerted the hostage situation through john spencer's fbi director jim womack receiving a call from hummel he's told of the rockets set to strike san francisco and will call back with demands then he hangs up the phone and his receptionist is like, I'll cancel all your plans, sir. And she's like, e-, like, like she was eavesdropping on the conversation. Like, he just hangs up without even saying a word. And she's like, I'm going to cancel all your plans. And he's like, how the fuck did, did what, what? This is FBI Director Womack. Director, be advised. 81. I say it again. 81 civilians are under my control as of this moment. You are to take measures to assure this remains a need-to-know classified fact. Who is this? Mr. Director, you have a very serious problem. A battery of VX gas rockets is presently deployed to deliver a highly lethal strike on the population of the San Francisco Bay Area. I will call again at 100 hours to state my demands. I want to know who I'm talking to. This is Brigadier General Francis X. Hummel, United States Marine Corps from Alcatraz. Out. I'll cancel your reservations. 
get the Pentagon and call the San Francisco office. It seems I watched that scene three times trying to decipher what message she had picked up to where she's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I, Everything is getting canceled to tell the parents not to come to dinner. Like, <laughs> then he tells her to get in touch with everyone in D.C. that it seems Alcatraz has just reopened. I mean, I, I guess he said that expecting his secretary to tell him good one, sir, or something like that. Like he just drops like a fucking quip, like between just him and the other person in the room, and it's like, were you expecting a fucking hand clap out of that? <laughs> like, all right. So Spencer and his bow tie assemble everyone together in D.C. It said that three. Uh, that it said that. Um, Hull had three tours in Vietnam, Panama, Grenada, Desert Storm, three Purple Hearts, two Silver Stars and the Congressional Medal of Jesus. This man is a hero. Humble then... The Medal of Jesus? That's That was what he says. <laughs> no, I know that. I'm, I'm just kidding. I've never heard of that before. I should have looked that up before I hit and record. Medal of He's like, yada, Jesus. yada, yada, and I've seen him walk three old ladies across the street before. Let me tell you, this guy gets it in. It's a thing. Medal of... Is it? Jesus. <laughs> Aha! It is. Alright. Fuck y'all. It is a real thing. Alright. So anyway. it, <laughs> it's something. It? I don't know. I didn't, like, I didn't look into it. So this uh, Humble then calls in via video chat. Video chat 96. I love it. And expresses his demands. He reminds them all of operations at the... Yeah. Operation Desert Storm, surgical hits that were made by their smart bombs, his men on the ground that made those hits possible by leasing the targets. Twenty died and left the rot. No benefits were paid to their families, no medals conferred. They weren't even given a proper military burial. burial. I knew I'd get it out. He then demands that they transfer $100 million dollars from a Grand Cayman Red Sea Trading Company to an account that he designates. From there, these funds, one million. From these funds, one million dollars will be paid to each of the 83 Marines' families. The rest of the funds, Hummel will disperse at his own discretion. He tells them if they alert the media or refuse payment, he'll launch the gas. They're given 40 hours before he hangs up. His team then explains to us how a single rocket of this is enough to wipe out 70,000 people. Single rocket. 70,000. 70 ain't that bad. Yeah, he's like, 70? That's not that bad. He's like, fuck Thousand! Seven. You stupid asshole! I meant thousand! A teaspoon, a teaspoon alone is lethal for up to 100 feet. Uh, he said, fuck them 70 people. It'll be alright. It's crazy. You'll need an act of Jesus to fucking save themselves out of this. That guy deserves a medal of Jesus. (laughs) He deserves a fucking swift kick in the ass. So the White House brings in the U.S. SEALs. Actual SEALs, my ad, to make things more authentic, like we discussed last week for Bad Boys 2. Led by Michael Baines, Commander Charles Anderson. They request the FBI's most skilled gas specialist, and we cut to good speed 
up on the rooftop where his fiance Carl is getting that dick, dick, dick. He's raving about her pigtails for her, and then suddenly his phone goes off. He answers and is ordered downstairs immediately. So he's giving this woman no fucking respect at all. But he always goes back to the old, but I gotta. It's my job. Gee, golly whiz, Carla. Because <laughs> you know he don't cuss in this movie, right? I noticed that. But yeah, we'll get, I, I, there's more on that. There's more to it. There's a story behind it. Not a major story, but there's a reason for it. Um, yeah, Carla flips shit, rightfully so. But he mistakes it for a training op. So he has her come to San Francisco anyway. Go get a room for the two of them to continue the little thing. Um, yeah. So I want to really quickly cut back to Michael Bain, who I mentioned at the top of this. Um, he this is the third time that he's played a Navy SEAL in a movie. First in the Abyss, and then in Navy SEALs, appropriately titled, and then uh, he was a Marine Corporal in Aliens. So he's been, you know, he's around. been through the SEAL game. He's been through the SEAL he's game. He's the real SEAL. <laughs> yeah. He's the real deal SEAL, Yeal. That's That was so fucking stupid. I'm going to keep it in, though. Meanwhile, the FBI realizes since this is Alcatraz and they'll need a way in, they call upon the only man who's ever escaped from the joint and lived to tell the tale. Sean Connery's John Mason. Originally, this was Schwarzenegger's role. He was offered before Goodman. Goodman. Before Connery. Goodman was not offered the role. Sean Connery was offered the role after Schwarzenegger turned it down. He, uh, at the time, the script was only 80 pages, which is like the equivalent to like an hour and 15 minutes. Not a long film at all. With a lot of handwriting and scribbles, and it didn't seem fully baked. That's a Schwarzenegger quote, not mine. And I read it. Asked me anything. He stated that he regrets not taking the role. Years later, however, he played a part as a convict with a mysterious past and escape planned. That's sort of a nod to him missing out on this performance of a lifetime that he didn't get. Um, then we have the confession room scene with uh, fuck, a very obviously wigged Sean Connery <laughs> with the long hair. And they first send in William Forsyth's Ernest Paxton. Where are you out on William Forsyth? Minus the oh, dorky looking hair. The, I, I thought you were asking about the character in the film. Yeah, I, I don't really. He was a uh, flat top in Dick Tracy. I was going to say, I know him from Dick Tracy. That's when I look at him. He was in Once Upon a Time in America. Raising Arizona. Uh, that movie is like four and a half hours long. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he was the, the, the brother of... Um, one of those people and then that was Rejects he's played the character of a, the sheriff from the first film House of a Thousand Corpses I'm a big fan of that movie and of course he came back for Rob Zombie's Halloween with like the, the most viciously foul mouth performance I've ever seen anyone give um, and then he's in what I feel is an underappreciated movie with De Niro and James Franco called City by the Sea. He plays the lead villain in that movie, like this biker. And I dude, I don't know. I something about that movie, I always go back to it every like handful of years or so, and I always come out of it enjoying it. And I never understood why that film just didn't take off. Not that it deserved to have like, you know, all these accolades or whatever, 
but I just felt like no one saw it. Like I don't think I've ever had a conversation with anyone about that movie. I've so, never heard of it. So, and that's nine times out of ten the response I get when I bring that film up. Oh, never heard of it. I have to put that on my list. <laughs> okay, you do that. No. Um, Good Speed comes in after. Yeah, so Forsyth he gets nowhere with with uh, um, I'm fucking up lines already. Mason, that's his name. I knew I'd get that out. He uh, don't he just doesn't get off. Gets off on the wrong foot, so he leaves. Tosses him a quarter, tells him he's going to go back in. Goodspeed comes in, pretending to work for the FBI. Um, he's like, you know, but I'm, but I'm Gaylor, but I'm still the Goodspeed. And he's like, but of course you are. That line was a direct quote from his role as James Bond in Diamonds Are Forever when he meets the character of Plenty O'Toole. There's a couple of Bond connections in this film that are enough to make people theorize things about John Mason in this movie. More on that later on. Um, oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah. So Mason uses this bluff because he knows the guy's just bluffing and blatant inexperience to get a nice shower, shave, and a haircut in a nice suite at the Fairmont Hotel. So then we see Mason smash the tip of a quarter that he takes earlier from a poor size character. He smashes it with his chair and then draws this circle effect on the two-way glass all to see Womack behind it. He like draws a circle and then elbows a you know perfectly circled per- broken glass and he's like, Womack, I knew it was you. So these two seem to have history. Which we're going to find out a little bit why. And uh, yeah. But I don't know. In, in my experience, I've never really seen or heard of um, a whole smash the edge of a quarter. You can draw a perfect circle and elbow your way through in, in no time. Does that affect something? Is that a. I don't know. Where are you at on that one? Yeah, that's bullshit. <laughs> no. Total <no>. bullshit. <laughs> so, yeah, I call it bullshit. So on the way to the Fairmont. Stanley tries to call Carla to tell her to stay home, but she refuses. This is also the first time that we're going to see Goodspeed, like this running gag, with him taking something that someone else said previously and tries to use it to his benefit, but it always backfires. Because um, the whole, like, you're on the, the, the whole comment that he has earlier about, you know, you're on a need to know basis and you don't need to know, and he tries to say it here with, with, uh, Mason, when Mason asks who's on the phone with, and he's like, you only need to know basis, and you don't need to know, and then he barks at him, because um, that happens a few times in the movie. So then we get the Fairmont Hotel scene. So, I don't know where to begin. Should we talk about the the cringe, stereotypical hairstylist that works on uh, the makeover here, or do we talk about the plan that just well, how about we talk about Sean Connery in the set in, in the shower singing um, "I'll Be Seeing You in San Francisco" or whatever that song is called. I love it. And you come for 
If you're going to San Francisco. Room service. This is the penthouse. You do snacks, drinks. It's great. He's just singing yeah. along, and then he's just secretly trying to get the whole pull string. That More on that in a second. I just love him singing that song in the shower and shit. Yeah, the shower song's great. Uh, the the dude's weird. Um, not not weird in the sense his his character just doesn't fit in. I feel like he just seems. Who are we so talking about? Not Sean Connery. So the hairstylist. The hairstylist. Yeah. Like I get the reason that he's there, but it's just I feel like him as a character just doesn't fit in in that moment like at all. Yeah, well, maybe not. It's not because he's flamboyant. It's just because that. Well, you you've just, never heard you never heard the term like they must be from San Francisco. Like back in the nineties, San Francisco like gay culture was a San Francisco thing. Apparently, okay, it's so very that, dated now. No one refers to it like that today. Rightfully so, they shouldn't. It's fucking god awful. I don't understand why they ever. Well, it's anyway, because I mean, um. Pee- what is his name? Pee Wee Herman. Um, Paul, Paul Rubens. Ru- Paul Rubens. And his character in Blow is much of the same. So obviously this was like a thing back then. Yeah. A piece of time in history that I have no prior knowledge there, of. But there I was just always feel that like term. it's so gimmicky. You know what I mean? It was like a term. Like, you know, it was a throwaway. Just like kind of like a gay slander. Like, oh, it was a San Francisco thing. And that's, it's a, and that's what this is alluding to. Right. It's it's, it's that but it's, trash it's, humor from Michael Bay that people like Justin on the show here fucking hate. Shout out, Justin. That one's for you, buddy. It's just funny because he's asking for all these situations to happen from basically the military. You would think that somebody from the military would come and cut their hair, but they just get some generic dude from San Francisco. <laughs> They're not going to go out of their way to find someone from the military to cut this know, dude's man. hair. It just feels like it doesn't fit. What doesn't fit is what happens next. He, like, distracts all the guards with, like, this massive buffet that he orders for everyone. So, this is an old bit. They're all distracted, so he takes this to his benefit. And remember that drawstring or a pool string I was telling you about in the shower... He wraps it, ties it around his wrist, and then, no, he makes like a little noose, and then he, when he goes to shake Womack's hand, he wraps it around and throws the motherfucker off the ledge. He drops down at least, at least 50, 60, maybe even 100 feet, enough to... I don't know, man. That little string's not going to hold that. that man's weight. His wrist slash hand would be fucked up. That's what I was He's saying. He's like, I was... yo, broke my wrist. Dude, it'd be more than broke. You probably wouldn't. It would probably just it would be straight the glove up you. Or you would. No circulation. You wouldn't be hanging. <laughs> you would not be hanging, dude. I'm sorry. Like. This is like the most implausible scene in the film. I still enjoy watching it because it's fucking ridiculous the way they filmed it. Like they actually filmed this scene at the Fairmont with the stunt guy hanging over the fucking ledge like this, and then like you got you know Mason the film up on the roof. Like Stanley's got a gun on him. Everyone else does, and he's like, "Who's getting heavy?" So it's like he wraps the other side of the rope. It's like you can actually like you don't have the strength to pull him. You're old. Like no. Nothing about this scene works, but it still works. If you just shut your brain off the way you're supposed to and watch this scene, yeah, 
It's fucking awesome. But otherwise, don't go into this with a plausible mindset in your head because you're going to come out disappointed. Anyway, um, so this starts like the big San Francisco downtown chase through the streets with the Hummer and the Ferrari. Um, just chaos ensues. The, 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 the chase itself turned out to be the biggest clusterfuck that Michael Bay has done in his entire career that he, that he said um, he said getting clearances for even a two block stretch required thousands of signatures and when they fell behind on the shooting schedule it resulted in a trio of studio reps arriving to give him a stern talking luckily and this is where my favorite story, or one of my favorite stories from this movie behind the scenes kicks in. This is when Sean Connery comes to his side wearing a fucking golf suit. He's wearing golfing attire and Bay goes to have this meeting with these reps and, you know, Connery goes with him. He passes him, you know, as he's going to this meeting and he's like, I'll go with you. And he's wearing a fucking golfing uniform still because he's coming back from golfing. So he doesn't even have time to change. He just goes with him, dressed the way he is, and just basically... Looking like the biggest elephant in the room. Yeah. when Yeah, the, the everyone's jaws dropped when they saw Connery there with him. Connery stood up for him, insisted that he was doing a good job and should be left alone. So they backed off. Um, yeah. So Stanley tracks down Mason... Well, he tracks him down through his next of kin and gets an address from his co-worker. It's Mason's daughter, Jade, played by the mall, played by Mallrats Claire Forlani. Have you ever seen, are you familiar with, you know, with this woman? I'm familiar with Mallrats. Does she ring a bell then? Um, the girl that T.S. is obsessed yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I remember she was bouncing around films in the mid-90s in particular. She's in Chasing Amy, right? No, she was in. Well, I'm, th- um, I'm thinking of the blonde girl. No, no, she was. She was in. Um, the Mallrats, The Rock, um, Meet Joe Black, and Boys and Girls, the the Medallion. I remember that movie. And then she kind of like went and didn't really do much, but she was popping up in these god-awful rum commercials. I forgot what the brand was. This was like five, six, seven years ago she was in these things. They were always popping up, and she was like a pirate with this horrible fucking accent. And she was in a lot of them. Like, she was a spokesperson and shit. Go back to sleep, Angus, darling. Um, and that's what I think of when I think of her, like, recently, is this fucking... That, that terrible accent and those commercials that she was doing for that rum company. So anyway, he goes, to, he tracks her house down. She's leaving with her friend and uh, he, that he is Stanley I'm talking about, Nicolas Cage. And he follows them and he's following them to the meeting place where she's, you know, meeting her father, you know, Sean Connery. And it's, they're having a secret meeting it doesn't really go the way Mason had planned, but then starts to turn around when he tells her that he wants to start a fresh relationship with her. Stanley shows up with the police to take Mason back into custody with Goodspeed confirming the news of him working with the FBI on an impromptu situation. So he covers his, even though he just went through 
this car chase that probably amounted to billions of dollars of destruction, he still has the heart to take up for him and be like, he's working on a special FBI case with us, ma'am. It's like, dude, I'd be like, get the fuck back in here for all that destruction you just caused. Right. <laughs> the mayor's going to have my ass because of you. Um, and he comes Nicholas up. Nicholas Cage just comes in. He's like, it's cool, man. No, actually, in reality, he comes in and he goes, why don't you cut the chit-chat a-hole? And this was Nicolas Cage's idea that his character Goodspeed doesn't swear. His euphemisms include lines like this one and gee whiz. And I think he has like two slips in the entire movie. And he says two cusses. Other than that, it was his idea. Faye thought it was ridiculous at first, but then went with it. Um, yeah, and according to Forsyth, back to William Forsyth, when he was about three weeks into shooting the movie and they were about to shift locations for filming, Forsyth was mistaken for an extra when he was getting a hot dog from the set's catering. Forsyth said that the employees told him that extras weren't allowed food from craft services, and she summoned security, who subsequently said that he was part of the main cast. Forsyth said, I ate my hot dog, but I'm thinking two things. The fact that after three weeks on the movie, I was being forbade a hot dog, and... I don't know what the hell they've got for the extras today. Trail mix, maybe? (laughs) (laughs) I like that. So Mason um, is showing Captain Anderson the way through, the way inside through blueprints, acting dumb, of course. He says that he's better with a photographic memory against Womack's wishes, so Goodspeed is forced to come along and... And Mason, like at first they were just going to have him show them the way, but they're like, nah, I got to go too. So he goes with Stanley Goodspeed, the man who doesn't like guns. He's going to go and be trained to use a gun. And, uh, yeah, he's, uh, pretty fucking scared about going to combat. But first thing he does is order his fiance to be brought in for safety. So... Um, and then we see that it's 15 hours to deadline. Anderson briefs the team on everyone's commands and who they are currently up against. And then welcome to the rock. They get in. They are now stuck between a tunnel and a flame place. They got this little fuel pump station where they got to get through. And good speed, like, times the rolls properly and gets through rolls around stops it, it's a cool thing to look at the way he times everything and goes through and then um, this is where Goodspeed uses another line that he's heard spoken before when asked where they found Good Mason he's like that's classified so there's a major logic flaw in the movie that we see in this scene here and this is pointed out by Michael Bay himself, for the record. Why are the boilers working on the rock when the island hasn't been used for years? These flames should not be running. This um, boiler room should not be operational at all. No, not at all. I may... Yeah, no. But Michael Bay then answers... I was going to try to defend it, but if Michael Bay said that it's a fuck-up, then it's... Yeah, <laughs> he, even, he even answered his own question saying, Screw it. It's entertaining, don't you think? That's what Michael Bay's, you know, 
thing in there. That's how it, you think? That's his view for everything. Everything's bitching or it's just a cool shot. Um, so the men get to the tunnel system and reach the shower room after 97 paces. Anderson's fiber optics camera catches a motion sensor. The same one that Bay would use once more for pain again, which we talked about last week. These are the same motion sensors that were used in both movies. Uh, he then accidentally triggers the sensor, and we get Hummel and his men catching them all by surprise. Dude, I love it when they first hear it go off with the alarm. They, they see that there's someone there. There's a noisemaker. They all get fucking excited. They're like, woo! We got someone. We gotta catch him now. We're gonna get you. And they all fucking run and surround the fucking shower room and uh, yeah, catch him all by surprise. Like I said, Anderson then refuses to stand down to Hummel and delivers one hell of a monologue before a fallen brick triggers a bloodbath where Hummel's men take out the entire team, leaving Goodspeed and Mason all alone on the island. Drop your weapons! Drop them! Stand back! Hold your fire! Drop your weapons! Hold your fire! It's a fucking trap. This is General Hummel. Drop your weapons! Drop them! Anderson here, General Hummel. Commander. Team leader. Commander Anderson, if you have any concern for the lives of your men, you will order them to safety their weapons and place them on the deck. This is not happening. Sir, we know why you're out here. God knows I agree with you. But like you, I swore to defend this country against all enemies, foreign, sir, and domestic. General, we've spilled the same blood in the same mud. You know goddamn well I can't give that order. We're dead. Your unit is covered from an elevated position, Commander. I'm not gonna ask again. Don't do anything stupid. No one has to die here. Men following the general, you're under oath as United States Marines. Have you forgotten that? We all have shipmates we remember. Some of them were shit on and pissed on by the Pentagon. But that doesn't give you the right to mutiny! You call it what you want! You're down there, we're up here! You walk into the wrong goddamn room, Commander! Goddamn it, Commander, one last time. You tell your men to safety their weapons, drop them on the deck. I cannot give that order! I am not gonna repeat that order! I will not give that order! What the hell is wrong with you, man? Stand fast! Oh my god. Let's waste these fuckers. One last time, you order your men to safety their weapons! Thank you for your services, Michael Bay. Exit stage left. You came. You tried to conquer. <laughs> you tried to save the day, but in the end, you gave us a Michael Bain performance. We remember. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Navy SEALs. A lot. Been a lot of times he's been a Navy SEAL. Yeah, the real deal SEAL. But uh, apparently, grew unsure of himself while acting through this scene the first time against real Navy SEALs. Like I said before. His team is comp- com- composited of like a couple of actors and the rest real Navy SEALs. And I guess he got a little stage fright. He uh, told Michael Bay he was freezing up, pretending to be the leader in front of them, as well as uh, Sean Connery, but didn't feel like uh, he was much of one. Or maybe it just felt weird playing that lead or that role in front of these people, knowing who they were. I don't know. 
So Goodspeed wants to finish the mission and attempts to strong arm Mason into helping. But Mason, seeing his chance to escape custody, arms Goodspeed and tries leaving. He's got a gun, sir. He's like, what do you have, a fucking water pistol? It's like my favorite line. Um, it's then revealed that Mason has held the FBI all this time without a fair trial. I'm sorry, he was held by the FBI all this time without a fair trial, having known all the FBI's most intimate secrets. This is essentially why he's pretty much been locked up and thrown away the key, because he knew one too many things that he wasn't supposed to know. So they unsimply, they unfairly tossed him away and hoped that he would simply disappear from society. But that's not what happened now, is it? Uh-uh. He came back. Angrier than before. And he's got a he's a trained killer. And he's the only one they've got. <laughs> so Goodspeed tries to resolve the situation, but gets his guns taken from him, like right away. Goodspeed then comes clean about the situation and asks him to help him defuse all the rockets. It's like fourteen rockets total, I think he says. The Marines, having found the weapons and radio missing from Anderson's second in command, start using explosives to flush out any survivors, and this is when they all escape and Mason agrees to help. And we get that cool shot of them diving under with the flames on top. So that shot took a while for Michael Bay to convince Cage and Connery to go through with. Like they were both not about going underwater, but yeah, they did. That's You're real. telling me the water is what got them and not the flames? Well, it was the water and the flames above them. The little combination. They were just like, nah. You okay, want me to do cool. what and have what above us? The fuck you are. But he got what he wanted. He uh had safe he had safety divers immediately outside of frames during the sequence. It was very frightening, Cage said, but uh Oh, and Connery wasn't happy about it either. But they got their shot, or Bay got his shot, rather. And it's an awesome shot. It's one of my favorite shots of this movie. Not my favorite. I would argue my favorite shot of this movie is probably... It's got to be the infamous shot of him with the flares. And the uh, the jet fire going flying above him. I love that shot. Um, yeah, so the, the two begin diffusing rockets. And we get our... Doing my best. Oh, your best. Losers try their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen part. Carla was the prom queen. You sure you're ready for this? I'll do my best. Your best. Losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. Carla was the prom queen. Really? Yeah. That line still holds up. I don't care what anyone says. I love that line so much, yeah. So then a shootout immediately ensues while Goodspeed's working on their first rocket. Mason ends up shooting at this ventilation unit that's up above when one of the soldiers tries to kill them all with a grenade while he's dying, causing the shaft to fall on top of him and kill him, including the funny line. Because afterwards we see his feet twitching and it's freaking out Goodspeed. He's like... Is that normal? He's like, can you make it stop? What do you mean to do? Make it stop? Kill him again? <laughs> um, so, yeah, the rocket gets diffused and the chip is destroyed. So they go around diffusing others. 
And I find it hilarious that Connery's just bombarded Cage with all these questions about the effects while he's just trying to be cautious. He's just like asking about details and shit about the the, the balls and like what the what the what the effects that it'll have if they get exposed and shit. And while he's just working on this bomb or trying to defuse this rocket, he's asking all these like detailed questions about like what would happen? The one thing we don't want to happen, let's say it does. What would it be? <laughs> it's like, it's the last thing he wants to fucking focus on, dude. You've been around a lot of corpses. Is that normal? What, the feet thing? Yeah, the feet thing. Yeah, that happens. I'm having kind of a hard time concentrating. Can you do something about it? Like what? Kill him again? Listen, I'm just a biochemist. Most of the time, I work in a glass jar and lead a very uneventful life. I drive a Volvo, beige one. But what I'm dealing with here is one of the most deadly substances the Earth has ever known. So what do you say you cut me some friggin' slack? configuration unfortunately incredibly unstable and what exactly does this stuff do if the rocket renders it aerosol it can take out the entire city of people really and what happens if you drop one happily it'll just wipe out you and me oh it's a cholinesterase inhibitor stops the brain from sending nerve messages down the spinal cord within 30 seconds any epidermal exposure or inhalation and you'll know twinge at the small of your back the poison seizes your nervous system. Do not move that. Your muscles freeze. You can't breathe. You spasm so hard you break your own back and spit your guts out. But that's after your skin melts off. Oh my God. Well, I think we'd like God on our side at the moment, don't you? Uh, so then we get Hummel and his men to go after Goodspeed and Mason, sending them down into a mine shaft from hell. Being chased by John C. McGinley after he lets Hummel down for not taking care of the rat problem before. Uh, McGinley's killed, though, in a very odd fashion. He, like, gets his legs on fire from Mason underneath of him. He squirts, like, this fluid and then just strikes a match, lights him on fire, and he's just hanging there screaming. (laughs) Fucking just screaming and freaking out. It's weird. His legs are burning up, and he's just hanging there screaming and then like Connery cuts the thing and he drops down into the water which how would that kill you again? I mean you have fucked up burnt feet or legs but I'm not sure that would actually kill somebody but whatever uh, and then Goodspeed gets a kill in too by taking out Duco Salamanca with a pistol looking a bit shaken up from it now this scene started with a lot of potential Cause like you know the, the the mines that were like hanging, that looked like you were gonna get like a little mine shaft ride. That was the intention. It was supposed to be a big cart scene that was meant to be you know a big chase with carts hanging from the ceiling as opposed to the ones on traditional tracks. But they ran out of money. And remnants of it are being seen in the film because you got good speed still hanging out inside of one of them where they toss the grenade and he grabs it and tosses it back. Um. Now, one thing they cut out, speaking of McKinley's weird, awkward death, 
the reason he's just hanging there awkwardly and screaming and nothing do not doing nothing else about it is because originally Mason stabbed him in the hand and pinned him to the cart with the knife. But the MPA removed the shot from being too gruesome and uh, out of character. This explains why he just hangs there and screams until his death, which is exactly what happens. He's just like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> That's essentially John C. McGinley's death in this movie. Um, again. Like the most generic way to die in an action film. Yeah, exactly. Again, exit stage left. Thanks for showing up, McGinley. Uh, Hummel takes a random hostage hostage, and threatens to kill him unless they return the chips that were taken. He's going to be so pissed once he finds out what they did to him in real life. Uh, not in real life, but, you know, in, unbeknownst to him, they destroy the chips. He don't know that, though. He's going to find out, and man, he's going to be pissed. So Mason tells Goodspeed to finish up with the last few rockets, gives him a thumbs up, and goes to surrender. So they think it's just him doing all this. Yeah, right. So Mason and Hummel have a face-to-face while Godspeed, Godspeed, Goodspeed defuses the lone rocket only to be ambushed by one of Hummel's men. It ends with like that line, I'd take pleasure in gutting you, boy. You see, Goodspeed and Mason are in their jail cells the next day and Mason is, or Goodspeed's just repeating that line over and over in different tones. I'd take pleasure in gutting you. I'll take pleasure in gutting you, boy. What's wrong with these people, huh, Mason? I'll take pleasure in gutting you, boy. And while he's doing this, Mason's just just being cool, calm, and collective, putting something together. And after a couple minutes, breaks himself out of Alcatraz yet again. And then he frees good speed in the process like it's fucking routine. And we get the line, how in Zeus's butthole did you ever get out of your cell? And that was a line that Michael Bay wanted to cut out. But Cage fought for it and ended up keeping it. Cage is like, no, I will say butthole on screen. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, can hear, I can hear Bay now. Man, Zeus's butthole? That doesn't sound bitching. I don't want that in my movie. <laughs> so... The rest of Humble's men are getting anxious and want to start shooting missiles into the sky. Meanwhile, Mason's leaving, but Goodspeed's trying to get him to stay. He eventually stays after saving him from a soldier who finds him and almost kills him. And this is it. I found a bunch of theories that Sir Sean McConnery's character... McConnery. Sir Sean Connery's character is actually playing an older version of James Bond. Like when he says he was trained by British intelligence... And like how his old character James Bond says, but of course you are previously in another film. And not to mention the obvious traits that we see sprinkled throughout. Um, But, you know, apparently it's uh, bullshit. I don't know. No one's really ever come forthright and spoke on this too much. I've found a couple of articles talking about it. I don't know where they're getting this whole idea that like, Everyone's on board with the theory because, again, this is my first time hearing the theory myself. You know how I am. So, I don't know. Just wanted to throw that out there. I mean, it's quite obvious they pay a lot of homage to him, but why would you not? It's Sean Connery. Like, I, I think that's just digging I too think, deep into I it. I think making that character 
like a old fossil James Bond type is just too much. Too much. A little on the nose. No. No. Just don't. So, it's three minutes to noon, and the White House calls asking for one more hour, but Hummel gives them three minutes, the ones that are left. He then nods to the trigger-happy bastards that he's got underneath him, and the first rocket gets fired, only to head past its target at the 49ers game and into the bay because Hummel aborts it. And, uh, yeah. It's been seven hours since the last contact with D.C., and the president is now issuing an airstrike attack to level the island and destroy the gas. They need a decision, Mr. President. These past few hours have been the longest, darkest of my life. How does one weigh human life? One million civilians against 81 hostages. And in the middle, Frank Hummel. That we have ignored, abandoned, or marginalized a great soldier like Frank Hummel. And that American boys have paid for that neglect and blood is equally real and equally tragic. We are at war with terror. Fighting war means casualties. This is the worst call I've ever had to make. Airstrike approved. Between this and Armageddon, this fucking president just loves letting casualties be a non-factor. Can you imagine this dude being president in Independence Day? He'd all be fucking dead. Because this is the same guy, Stanley um, Anderson, plays the same character in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's it, you know, Obviously in the Bayverse, it's the same president. So Michael Bay knows his president, not my president. He's <laughs> this Because of this man, Armageddon and The Rock take place in the same universe, so just saying. Uh, Hummel and Baxter, they're uh, talking about what just happened. And Hummel explains the rocket threat was an elaborate bluff, as he had been never intending on harming innocent civilians. He declares the mission over and orders them all to exit Alcatraz with some hostages and the remaining rocket to cover the retreat while he assumes blame. Darrow and Fry, that's Tony Todd and uh, the guy from Say Anything, and True Romance, which is coming next week, realizes that they're not going to get paid their million dollars apiece. Mutiny against them. They declare themselves mercenaries, and then a Mexican standoff ensues that eventually leads to a shootout. I bet you this is the scene that Quentin Tarantino wrote. Well, not in a minute. Baxter and Bokeem Woodmines Crisp are both killed right away, while Hummel is mortally wounded, but manages to tell Goodspeed where the last rocket is before dying. So Goodspeed goes and sends the final rocket into the sky when he, uh, Asks Tony Todd if he likes Elton John. I don't listen to that soft rock shit. Is that what he says? Like, soft rock shit. Yeah, it's like soft rock shit. But that's you. You're the Rocket Man. Come on, I don't need the gun. Put it down. Come on, let's play. Come on. It's 
Listen, I think we got started off on the wrong foot. Stand good speed, FBI. Uh, let's talk music. Do you like the Elton John song, Rocket Man? I don't like soft ass shit. Oh, you don't? Well, I only bring it up because, uh, it's you. You're the Rocket Man. And fires him away. And not only that, like, he falls and goes, like, his side gets, like, impaled through this, like, rod and shit. It's pretty gnarly. Um, and then we get Goodspeed versus Captain Fry, which leads to uh, Airstrike on the verge of dropping bombs when Goodspeed injects himself in the heart. And then re- releases the smoke to call off the plates. The plates. The planes. Um, although one trigger-happy motherfucker accidentally drops a bomb that sends good speed into the Pacific. And I should mention before that, this is when uh, he takes the, the... The fight ensues, and um, he takes one of the, 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 the green balls and puts it into the dude's mouth and shuts his mouth by just punching him in the jaw. And, like, this dude's spitting this shit out. Like, he's getting it from the inside out. I'd hate to see his death all up close. Ugh. Um... So yeah, this is, like I said, we get that fucking gnarly shot of Cage on his knees with the flares, which is like my favorite shot by far. And some of the, some of them, most of them, the scenes that involve the F-A-18s that we see in the sky, stock footage. Stock footage of the, uh, the, the Blue Angels. Do you know the Blue Angels? Uh, yeah, I didn't pick up on that. I definitely know who the Blue Angels are, but I, I didn't pick up on that, no. Yeah, it's stock footage from them. Not They didn't actually get... It doesn't surprise me too much, but... Probably ran out of money. <laughs> Jesus, that has to be a common occurrence for this fucking movie. I know, we didn't get the mineshaft sequence. I mean, we didn't get the... <laughs> um, so Goodspeed confirms to the FBI headquarters that he's alive, but Mason didn't make it giving him time to flee to a hotel in San Francisco where he's got a suit and $200 for him to take since Womack tore up his papers. Fucker. <laughs> After all that shit and helping them, and he tore up his papers, he doesn't... That, it's, I hate that. I hate that about Womack because I, I want to like Womack because I like John Spencer, but he makes it hard when he's pulling shit like this. Um, and then we get our final scene with uh, Mason... No, I'm sorry. Goodspeed and uh, Carla at St. Michael's Church, Fort Walton, Kansas. Front pen, right leg, hollow. And um, apparently, what it is, it's uh, you know, it's a, it's a church in Kansas with uh, a microfilm. With uh, apparently, it's evidence of JFK's real assassin. St. Michael's Church, front pew, right leg, front pew. Kill 
So as they're driving off, we see like a thunderstorm in the distance. And the on-screen text reveals that the film is dedicated in loving memory to Don Simpson. And that has been Michael Bay's The Rock from 1996. All right. Let's talk about the box office. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250,000 American dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want receipts. So the film was released. I'm sorry. So the film has premiere on Alcatraz Island on June 3rd, 1996. I remember this premiere. This was a big premiere. It's not every day. Your world premiere is on the rock. <laughs> I didn't know all that. That's um. They probably had it's it. going super far out of your way to see a movie. They probably screened it in a gym with like a shitty projectile and shit. <laughs> anyway, it was um. I wonder if the boiler rooms were going. <laughs> yeah, gotta keep it warm. It was released a few days later on June seventh from Hollywood Pictures. It opened up across two hundred. I'm sorry, two thousand. 392 screens coming in at number one opening weekend grossing 25 million dollars it only dropped 26.2 percent and its second weekend it uh, dropped the number two still but it grossed 18.5 million which is pretty fucking good not gonna lie this is even better total gross for this movie ready for this 335.1 million dollars Against a $75 million budget. See, you should, you guys should have just given him more money to produce all these exploding scenes and shit. Could have had, could have had, uh, minecart battles and... <laughs> Michael Bay himself could have done a battleship. Could have made it a better movie. Maybe. Maybe not. Who knows? I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> no. You're right. That movie was a lost cause from the beginning. It was an, from the moment it was announced. Um, all that being said, let's move on. Uh, let's take a walk to the Crick's Corner and see what they all had to say. The film had a Rotten Tomato score of 68% based off of 68 reviews, with the critical consensus saying for versatile thrills, it can't be beat. For visceral thrills, it can't be beat. Just don't expect The Rock to engage your brain. It's got a meta score of 58 out of 100 based on 24 reviews and a cinema score of A. Ebes awarded the film 3.5 stars out of 4 praising it as a first-rate slam-bang action thriller with a lot of style and little... No, I'm sorry, with no little humor. His partner, Siskel, wasn't so nice. He gave it two and a half out of four. Says there isn't a shot, scene, or sequence in The Rock that doesn't move furiously, typically with uh, colored lights flashing into our faces or onto those of the actors. Tab McCarthy of Variety gave the film a positive review commenting the yam has its share of gap, gapping hole, gaping holes and jaw-dropping improbabilities, but director Michael Bay sweeps them all aside with his never-take-a-breath pacing. 
Peter Travers from Rolling Stone ultimately called it a popcorn movie deluxe. Meanwhile, Janet Maslin from the New York Times said, Pure why not bravado, pumped up and staggeringly dishonest, but excitingly just, but exciting just the same. And finally, James Broadinelli, our friend, <laughs> gave it three out of four says producers Jerry Bruckheimer and the late Don Simpson have a highly successful resume that includes Top Gun and Crimson Tide. The Rock will add more luster to that reputation. Overall, a lot of praise. This was a big movie when it came out. A lot of people adored this movie. A lot of people that were into action were into this movie. And this is me based off of my memory of like just being around people. Um, I have vague memories of when this came out um again i was 12 so um i do remember a lot of people being into this i remember whenever i talked to this movie to others i didn't get a lot of pushback i can't remember a single time where i was just like defended or had to defend the movie because you know it's the rock people appreciate at least this movie and i mean even our very own justin boyd can um, at least appreciate The Rock. You may not think it's a great film, but I know you can at least appreciate it. So, anyway, let's move on to uh, P's and C's, little pros and cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. Alright, I'll start with my pros. The film is such a breeze to get through. The pacing is fantastic. Cage and Connery's chemistry is undeniable. Intense action throughout. Never too much, never too little. And Bay, when it's for Bay, I think this is his most mature film, for better or worse. How about you? What are your pros? Um, I definitely love Sean Connery's performance in the film. I think it's like his write-off performance because I, I can't think of any other movies he was in after this that was like just truly amazing. Entrapment, another film that I mentioned earlier because he said it was his favorite film in the 90s. Um, the Avengers, not that Avengers, the, the, the uh, British Avengers with Uma Thurman and Ray Fiennes. Uh, his final film was, of course, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> um, Finding Forrester came out in between those years. I mean, he did a bunch. You know, maybe not films that you remember, but he did a bunch. I can vouch. I suppose. It was the last time I can recall, like, really enjoying a film of his. Um, I've, I love the story. The story is intense, and the pacing matches it very well. Um... My cons is, and I say this every time I watch a Nicolas Cage film, I just don't like Nicolas Cage as an actor. I just don't. I I really just can't take any of his movies seriously. But oh, really? He, he, was, he, he did really great with Sean Connery, and I feel like Sean Connery was definitely the perfect complement for him. So in him, him yucking it up and adding that little awkward and quirkiness to his character didn't do it for you? No. Huh, it, okay. it made it kind of awkward, a lot more awkward to than I remember own. it being. Um, I mean, I like Conair, but I, I, I definitely don't like Conair because of him in particular. You know, I think Malkovich is probably my favorite character in that film. But I just feel like Cage can't hold a film 
on his own, but he did pretty well in this. So I, that was the first thing that I like was really paying attention to when I was watching it this time around was because I I feel a certain type of way about Nick Cage. I right. I've always have, and this is definitely a rock solid performance from him. But that's definitely a con though for me in particular, just because he. He's so awkward in the movie. Like every scene I see him, he's just so awkward, and especially in That's that point. intense scene where he's like disengaging the bomb, and Sean Connery is basically fucking with him, just asking him a bunch of questions. Like he seems like he would rather be anywhere else but there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, you're right. And the other con that I have is, dude, I say it every Michael Bay film. Stop fucking blowing shit up. Like <laughs> Jesus Christ. It got to the point where I was like, dude, how many how many times is he just going to blow shit up in this film? I get that the film is about bombs and shit, but damn, dude, stop blowing stuff up. Maybe your budget won't be $78 million. Maybe you could put cart scenes in your next film. Who knows? And I only have one con, and that is that, that the film itself tends to take itself, like I said, way too seriously at times. It's, like I said, the film takes itself way too seriously at moments and I don't know sometimes it's unwarranted and um, I don't know it's not even a full con because sometimes it works with the plot like with Hummel's character but then other moments I feel like it's like okay this is a bit this is a tad too much you know the, the, the sappy music and all it's just I don't know sometimes I just want a full decked out action film with little drama so, and I, that's just a minor con, really. It's just me nitpicking or more or less me struggling to find a con because I th- think this movie's it's by no means not a perfect movie. It's got flaws, but it's kind of hard to pick those flaws out when you're just having such a good time watching it overall. Um, let's move on to Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again... Would you make the same choices? So, uh, let's see. If there was one thing I would change about this film, um, it would be this simple. You need to cool the soldiers off in the third act. Suddenly, they're all about killing them all and taking that money, and it all just feels like it's just out of of left field. And um, I just don't like it. It's pretty much there to just serve a third act climax just show some sort of peril for Christ's sake otherwise it's just we've got Hummel back on our side let's get these rockets together and go home hand in hand it's like no suddenly you know Fry and, and the other guy just turn into the film's villains Bukin Whoopbines there is like tries to he's just really obviously just nervous like he can't even properly point his gun while he's trying to uh, dismember him so doesn't quite work for me. So, other than that, this movie's near, near flawless. Um, so, yeah. you? I mean, I guess my mulligan moment would probably be that awkward chase with Sean Connery throughout the, the city. I think it's the second act. San of the Francisco film. chase. It's. I was sitting there watching. And I was like, man, this. What the, what the hell am I watching right now? Why like I understand why it's going on, but it's just like so ridiculous. And it's like you said, like the film takes itself seriously too much, 
and then there's scenes like this that just don't take it serious at all. <laughs> so right, no respect. All right, um, well then let's move on from the bad and talk about the good. Finger licking good. <laughs> Finger licking good. Um, everything from them arriving at Alcatraz to the shower room scene topped off by Bay's badass monologue performance. Um, I think that's the best of this movie is that all of them coming into Alcatraz and then reaching that shower room and then from the shower room scene we get that awesome dialogue, monologue between banter, whatever you want to call it, between Bane and Connery. It's just some legendary shit, you know, and it's my favorite moment from the movie, hands down. How about you? Yeah, it's 100%, and I'll back that up. Um, that shower scene is just so so freaking intense, um, and everything leading up to it really was. Like, from the second they touched down on Alcatraz till that ending monologue between the two, I mean, it's it's really well done. It's definitely Michael Bay's top-tier directing. Absolutely. All right, let's talk about our movie MVPs. All right, now, you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is... My MVP... I know, I, like, you want to go first. I want to hear what your MVP is. Who's your MVP for this movie? My MVP is Ed Harris, actually. I, I, I absolutely loved his villainous ways and how he had some form of guidance and respect to him, even though what he was doing was absolutely batshit crazy and basically a big bluff. But he he he's a villain that has character to him and has, you know, that's uh, where I'm looking for, where he's got beliefs that he upholds and right never really guides himself off the way. Morals. Yeah, morals, that's it. He's got morals to uphold and... So Ed Harris is my favorite part of the film. I th- going into it, I thought I was going to easily say Sean Connery, but that you know now that I'm a little bit older and understand it a little better, I, Ed Harris is just an awesome performance in that in movie. Well, I guess I'm going to stand alone on this island because mine's Nicolas Cage. Um, he's just the perfect variation of a character named Stanley Goodspeed. <laughs> um, with all the awkward ticks and motions, and I just think he carries the decent bit just of the film on his shoulders successfully. There. Um, so yeah, it's 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 easy for me. I just think that Cage is just perfect and awesome. You and I have two completely different opinions on the man, and that's fine. That's that that film subjective. I love it. Different opinions make for better conversations. And so, uh, from that point, um, we go into our final part for the final ratings and review. I say we uh, tie a bow on it and put her to bed. I'll go first. I'm giving this 4.5. 4.5 stars. It's a blast that never disappoints. Um, like I said, it's, it's, really, it's really close to being a flawless film. But, you know, nobody's perfect. Uh, but this movie is just, it's got everything you need in a movie. And, um, I don't know, it's, 
it's just a ride, dude. It's, it's, it's come on. I, I, it's hard for me to sell this film when you. You should know what The Rock is about. You know, I, I shouldn't be convincing you to watch The Rock in 2022. Um, you should be listening to this, having known what an awesome film The Rock is. And if you've gotten this far into the episode, then you know how fucking awesome The Rock is. So there, 4.5 because I said so. Andrew, what's yours? I'm going to go 3.75. I don't think this is as perfect of a film as everybody else seems to think, but it's definitely my favorite Michael Bay film. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I had a lot of fun watching it, and I really thought that Nick Cage was going to like deter me from my entertainment. I don't feel that bad about Nick Cage. I just feel like, man, whenever Nick Cage is in a performance, it's always like cringe for me, I feel. But this one doesn't feel that way. Um, I, th- I feel like he definitely helmed that character very well. Um, Sean Connery, obviously a magnificent performance to, um, stand to... Sean Connery nailed a great performance and was a perfect you know one-two punch within that realm. Ed Harris, fantastic villain. Um, Alcatraz, interesting place, interesting plot point. I'm very happy that he used Alcatraz as, you know, the actual aesthetic, if you will. Um, and the key moments in the film are great. You know, that's that, like I said, the shower scene's magnificent. The scene where they're defusing the bomb is extraordinary. I could have just done without all the explosions and the ridiculous chase scenes. So in a sea of absolute subpar Michael Bay films, because my God, there's a lot of them. This one stands out as a bright, bright gem. All right, well, this episode is sponsored by Alcatraz, San Francisco's destination tourist attraction, when it's not being held up by a team of bluffy Marines who want to call for patriotism on an island full of hostages. Welcome to The Rock. Book your visit today. And with that being said, we're done. That is a wrap on our Bayhem Month and also a wrap on our episode of The Rock, a film that 100% gets that full film effect seal of approval. One down, many more to follow. Check out our ever-growing collection of previous episodes over on our website, which, of course, is thefilmeffectpodcast.com. And please follow us on the following social media platforms for all future announcements and up-to-the-minute updates. Uh, we got Facebook and Instagram where you can follow us at the Film Effect Podcast. We are on Twitter where you can follow us there at Film Effect Pod. TikTok, we're at Film Effect Podcast. YouTube, YouTube is brand new. We are new to YouTube, uploading episode clips and eventually we'll be using it for other cool things. Uh, but for now, we do not have a um, customized URL because you have to have X amount of followers before you can have that option. Um, so until then, just uh, check out the episode links, or just Google, or, or just look us up on YouTube. Search for us, the Film Effect, that the Film Effect Podcast, and we will show up. So uh, yeah, the the more subscribers, the better. Um, ratings, reviews, you know, positive ratings and reviews all help out with the uh, algorithm. Helps us get known, um, and it helps us just uh, just. just we want to get put out there so more and more can hear us. That's all. So, yeah, check out our Furycast episode this Friday and check out our collection of Bayhem episodes from the month of May. So sad. It's come to a close. 
Uh, next week, we got a left-right combo of episodes coming out on May, May, on Monday and Tuesday. Monday, we are dropping episode 99 because we missed Bay Bam because we missed Tarantino Triple X month in May. We're gonna make up for it. We got two episodes dropping in June, starting with episode 99, True Romance, an episode that yeah, yeah. Did you cover that? Haven't you already covered that? Yes. I covered that, but I covered that one solo. That was the very first episode of the Film Effect Podcast. So we are bringing things full circle this coming Monday. And me and Corey and whoever else wants to do it that's part of our podcast can and, um, yeah, will. So that's um, coming. And then episode 100 drops the next day. And like we've said numerous times on the show, we will tell you one more time, we're covering The Shining can't fucking wait. So that's all coming next week, guys. Next week is going to be an exciting week. Cannot wait to share it with all. Um, anyway, do you have anything else you'd like to add before we depart, Andrew? Not particularly. Excited to be back on Fewercast this week. All right, well. That's about it. We'll be excited to have you and looking forward to having you recommend something you've never seen before. Until then... Thanks, everyone, for checking out the episode. And uh, until next week, it's been fun, but now it's done. Take care now. Bye-bye. Say goodbye, Andrew. Oh, goodbye, Andrew. (laughs) See ya. This concludes our broadcast day.